0: Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can download our 2024 sponsor kit on our magnificent homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. This is episode one in our new three-part series titled Startups, Scale-Ups, and Grown-Ups. We're focusing on the role of marketing in the marketing mix, and of course the role of brand in the growth of companies over time. Here's a clip from today's show.
1: And for, for us at Halley, now that, you know, our distribution has really increased and we feel that our product assortment is where we want it to be, it's it's now the time that we're really starting to think about brand more seriously. You know, there, there's still going to be a level on what's achievable and what we can afford. But I think that positioning, you know, Halley overall as, you know, wearable hair color and all those kind of like more brand sentiments um, is something that we're really focused on for this year.
0: That's Catherine Winokur, CEO and founder of Holly hair in New York. She's joined by Emma Ermgassen, co-founder of Motivo drinks in London and Jessica Klimczak, most recently VP product marketing at Intain in San Francisco. We're going to be talking about marketing at the startup phase. It's certainly not a world of paid media maybe some SEO and social, but otherwise it's all earned. It's guerrilla tactics and content creation. It's getting the basics right, product market fit, defining your brand proposition, and building a team. It's all about winning over gatekeepers and creating a circle of influencers. You, in essence, are the brand, and you must embody all of its values. And you need to be flexible enough to be building the plane while you're flying it. In our next episode in the series titled Scale-Ups, we'll hear from a new set of brands on how things dramatically change in the next phase of growth as you scale up with paid media, and marketing and brand building becoming true drivers of growth. I'm joined for the introduction to this first episode by Connor Archbold, co CEO of our series sponsor, Tracksuit. You can learn more about Tracksuit at gotracksuit.com. Connor, what does brand health mean for these early stage companies? Because in this episode, we're talking about startups. And I'm just curious does brand health mean something different at this stage?
2: brand is important across the entire journey of your company marketers they always have two jobs earlier on you're capturing a little bit more existing demand than building future demand because you need to to figure out who that icp is you need to figure out whether you have product market fit so you're investing more in that um that existing demand and capturing you know converting um but marketers know they still have two jobs they have to make people fall in love with their brand. And the 95% of folks who aren't ready to buy today, you need to help them fall in love with your brand so that, they're, so that you are in their consideration set later. And that doesn't change whether you're a tiny company or a big company. The balance of how much you spend on each of those camps changes, but the two jobs, they're always present. You always got to do them. We exist to help you know marketers understand how that 95% think and feel about their brand and their competitors. There's brands and and at a certain point, everyone's going to need to know that. If You go on the tracksuit website. Uh, we actually have we we've, we've used a bunch of the um, data collected by Peter Field and Les Binette, um brilliant uh, marketing science legends. Um, and you can actually type in your age of company, the category you're in, budget, etc., and you will find out the exact split between top of funnel and bottom of funnel that marketing science says you should have. So. Um, That's free. Jump on the Trexit website, do that um, and find out what that split should be. The brands that will win long term are paying attention to the full funnel. So they're paying attention to the bottom and what's happening and conversion. They're also paying attention to how their brand is perceived by the wider category and, and how their kind of future growth is going to be maintained by building awareness and building consideration and how that flows down through the funnel.
0: It is Connor Archibald, co CEO of Tracksuit, the affordable brand tracking solution for modern brands. Thank you, Connor, for joining us for the intro for this first episode. We'll see you uh, on the next one. Thanks, Fergus. And here is episode number one. Enjoy. Can you briefly tell us about Halle Hair, uh, what it sells, and where it's sold, Catherine?
1: Yes. Hi, I'm Katherine Winneker, the founder and CEO of Halley. Hallie is about to turn three years old next month. We sell modern at-home hair color and hair accessories for Gen Z, millennials, and even some generation alpha. Uh, we like to call them the next generation. We are currently sold in national distribution at Ulta Beauty, Target, Walmart, and Amazon, as well as HallieHair.com.
0: Where did it all start for you uh, Catherine? Like what was the what was that moment where you were like, okay, there may be a business opportunity here that I can take advantage of?
1: Yeah, I actually really stumbled into Holly. I had a 12-year career in marketing uh before starting Holly. My First job was tremendous, it was at PepsiCo, working on Blue Can, regular Pepsi and Diet Pepsi. After that, I went to Unilever and got to work on Dove for three years. And I was in my late 20s and kind of felt like I needed to learn you know, direct response and e-commerce. Uh, so joined a few startups, which were really crash courses into um, online marketing. And then was working at Walmart, actually running marketing for Jet Black, which was the premium offshoot of Jet under Mark Laurie. And the summer of twenty nineteen, I was very pregnant with my a daughter. Uh, she was came in September, and I had a summer intern who had a terrible at-home hair dye experience. Um, She (laughs) completely fried her hair. She came into the office. You know, it was a whole team thing, and we were all helping Mare out. And she had to leave to go to a salon to get it color corrected. And I kind of just couldn't believe it was still happening. You know, I have very dark hair, and I had a bad run-in with Sun in when I was in middle school, and my hair turned orange. Um, And here I was, like, 20 years later almost, and... The same thing had happened to Mare, just felt like it had those marketers or those markers that you look at, you know, from a marketing background of, you know, wide addressable market, a few kind of legacy CPG players that have the lion's share of it, uh, very little innovation, very little brand relevance, you know, for a young customer who's experimenting.
0: So, Amy, how about you for Botivo? Tell us the story behind that. Where did it all start for you?
3: Yeah, so, so Bativo, um, you know, we're in the UK, so you guys won't be aware of it, but we are a non alcoholic drink um, and it is an aperitif um, inspired botanical drink, um, which takes over a year to make. So it's like a truly, truly craft product, which has got no flavorings or preservatives. And um, I have a business partner. Uh, my co-founder uh, called Sam who actually created the liquid before I joined so I joined when it was a few months old um, and the kind of story is is that Sam actually has another business uh, where he creates the drinks for some sort of really high-end um, events so Put into context, he created all the drinks for the royal wedding, Harry and Meghan, for example. So he's kind of done really high profile um, events and had really, really demanding clients. And it got to a point where people were asking for non-alcoholic drinks that were you know, all natural, no flavorings, no preservatives, like truly, truly like amazing in taste. Um, and he actually ended up making the liquid of Bativo for these events um, and was serving them. Uh, and eventually, you know, more and more people are coming up saying, you know, where do I buy this liquid? It's delicious. Um, and I think after kind of 100th request, he was like, OK, I'm, I'm going to have to sort of bottle this and um, and make it into a product.
0: Is it an ingredient or do you drink it straight? Or is it so, both ways? You
3: know, no, so, so it's, it's actually got an aged apple cider vinegar base. So it's aged for one year to soften it and take away the acidity. And then it's infused with rosemary, thyme, gentian, wormwood, oranges and honey. And it's served just with sparkling water and a slice of orange. Um, or with tonic water, or actually it also is used as a modifier for cocktails as well, alcoholic cocktails.
0: So the so that whole category was was part of the reason why you joined because you saw that non-alcoholic category is I mean, it is blowing up over here in terms of year over year growth. I think it's one of the fastest growing categories. It's in yeah. beer, it's in spirits. I don't even know if spirits can be called spirits anymore. But um, is that part of what the appeal was for you? Because you come out of a sort of a background of, of strategy and insights.
3: Yeah, so I worked for almost 20 years um, on the agency side. So I worked in strategy brand, you know, building brands from everyone from, from Heineken, Diageo to Adidas to, to Nike. Um, and actually, you yeah, know, it really wasn't a commercial decision for me. It was, it was purely a fashion thing. I just thought it tasted so good.
0: Was your partner uh, what we might call here a mixologist, like a bartender, or was he a was he just was he a craft person, or is he a crafts craft type artisanal person at heart?
3: He's artisanal, so we call ourselves. He's the artisan. I'm the I'm the head of the list, Is what we kind of call ourselves internally. So I'm a kind of pleasure seeker who loves taste, and he is an artisan who is completely obsessed with like making delicious things. So for his drinks company before, he always made everything from scratch. Um so that is his background so he he started off as a chef and then he was a bartender and then he started making drinks for these kind of really high profile um people and events.
0: Jessica is this is this pretty common you find with startups because you've been involved with Entain you've been involved in a number of other startups is this a car, sort of a common theme of where these companies tend to start there's this passion there's this there's this gap you see in the market. I mean what what are your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah I mean it definitely I think entrepreneurs overall are super passionate about what they lean into, right? And I think that's why people gravitate to startups, because they see the passion that lives within the founder and the the person who ideates it, right? Who maybe isn't the leader at the time you join. But I think there's definitely a gap in the market. If you're successful, there's a gap in the market, right? I think it's hard if there's a uh, large permeation um, within a market to be successful. But yeah, I think it always comes to passion. And I think people join startups because they want that passion and that drive across the board. And you know, I think I kind of went the opposite way of Catherine in my career. Like I started in startups and and was part of Series A to, to taking them public or acquiring them by big companies. And the startup passion is just different, right? You're like, I'll do whatever it takes. I want this to succeed so badly. It doesn't matter if I'm the office manager. I will help, you know, put together designs for paid ads or whatever the case may be, because everyone just wants it to succeed so badly.
0: Catherine, for you, do you at this at this stage of growth, do you have investors or do you have a board that you have to? that you're responsible to, or do you find that you are making most of the decisions along with your, you have a marketing lead uh, who's on your team? How how does, you know, what's the day-to-day like for you in terms of decision-making?
1: It's definitely curved, right and iterated as with any startup each year's like dog years. But we have 10 people on our team now. We completed a Series A round at the end of 2022 and that that juncture we had the first 4 years there was 4 of us and no board really in place. But with the Series A came that so we now have, you know, a small board that I speak with one member every week and then the rest of the members, you know, we convene every quarter. And as far as the team, you know, I've been fortunate enough to just have wonderful relationships with a lot of them that predated Hallie. So actually, our CMO was my boss at Unilever. So she is really, you know, an expert, uh, had a career in in marketing, both at big CPG and, and startups. So Abby really leads the day to day um, for us. And I think that I manage mostly Product innovation and supply chain and and finance at this point.
0: So for for Motivo, I mean, is it the same way? Are you coming in as a marketer? Are you thinking as a marketer? Are you thinking about uh, how how to roll this out?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like my I, I I my background is sort of brand building and marketing, so I completely approached it um, from a sort of marketing point of view. But the first step was just trying to identify sort of a white space i guess in the market and 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 for me that is very tied to product because i don't believe that you can create a brand unless the product attributes that you're actually um the product has can actually claim those things um authentically so for me bativo was a really really pleasurable product and at the time uh when it launched, everyone in the market was talking about moderation and holding back, and I still think that's very much the dominant narrative. It's very much rooted in you know, "drink for tomorrow" or like you know, moderate and that kind of more, more, uh, moderation narrative.
0: And that was be- that's because of the alcohol content in certain drinks, right? Or no?
3: Well, I think well, I think that people sort of assume that like people are going to non-alcoholic drinks because they're not drinking, and actually, for me, the shift was. I'm not going to Bativo because I'm not drinking. I'm going to it because it's freaking delicious. Um, and I felt like actually like, you know, categorizing the market and dividing the market like that felt felt very uh, residual. And actually, um, you know, our, our our consumer isn't a, a non-drinker. They're actually a, a kind of a foodie who loves the way things are made, who loves real ingredients, who loves quality. And actually putting a sort of, Dividing things into sort of moderators drink this and pleasure seekers drink alcohol felt very wrong to me. And actually, um, the whole brand around Botiva is a pleasure brand, not a moderation brand. And that's very much with my marketing hat on where sort of white spaces and the kind of consumer that we want to talk to doesn't really relate to moderation narratives a lot of the time. Um, And yeah, I think that's also where the market's heading and where the momentum is going to be going in the future.
0: So do you market uh, Botivo as a non-alcoholic drink, or is that a secondary message, or even tertiary?
3: Well, reluctantly, we do, um, in that we have no choice because buyers or consumers, etc., always want to put a label on something. So you know, if you're selling in in a restaurant, you have to be in the non-alcoholic section. If you are selling on a website, you have to be in the the non-alcoholic section. But In terms of how we speak as a brand, we never talk about dry January. We never talk about moderation. We never talk about October. They're just not language that we ever go for because the idea is we don't want people to drink it when they're not drinking. We want people to drink it as a genuine, delicious alternative. Um, And it doesn't make sense for us to um, kind of pit them against each other um, with that brand strategy in, in mind.
0: You guys are two years in and so you're 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 at that early stage where there's probably a lot of sort of guerrilla tactics going on when you think about marketing is marketing really targeted more towards stakeholders and gatekeepers at this point people who can either decide to stock you in or cannot are are, are you looking at marketing to a broader consumer audience at this stage no.
3: It's interesting. So we're now starting to move to a broad audience. But I think what's interesting about non-alcoholic drinks is you almost have to rip up the marketing rule book a little bit. Um, I think that the first stage of marketing, as we all know, is normally you know, awareness and you know telling people about your product. And actually, with non-alcoholic drinks, because so many people have been burnt so badly with the quality in the past, there's actually a, a sort of phase before you even enter awareness, which is credibility. And so the first thing that I sort of did when we sort of relaunched the brand and and the brand relaunch only happened a year ago was to really be like, okay, well, how can I even persuade people that this product's completely different? And so there was a whole whole kind of segment around that. And so that included really going into the prestige restaurants, really going to the food critics, going to the chefs, people that would never, ever normally put their stamp of approval on a product unless it was absolutely delicious and well-made. So we invested a lot in in the credibility phase, um, and we got a lot, a lot of traction through that. And then, from people discovering us in the on-trade, people reading about us through these tastemakers that they trusted, then we were able to get them to try us. And now the next phase is liquid on lips. How do you get consumers to actually okay we decide? Okay, we're gonna we, you know we're gonna go and try it. And now where do we try it?
0: So invest a lot. You use the term invest a lot. Is that do you mean invest a lot of time or invest a lot of money?
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I wish we had money. Um, <laughs> that's the money, the small amount of money that we have. Uh, we invested a lot of time. So it was, a lot of it was sending out bottles to these people, asking them if we could quote them, um, just trying to find really smart ways to um, get, you know, going door to door to these kind of really amazing restaurants, getting in front of the sommeliers, getting a quote from the sommelier that we could then use on our socials um, and just kind of really hustling um, to get these tastemakers' um, opinions into the sphere of our brand without paying for them. Um, and then the second phase now that we that we kind of realised afterwards was, okay, we now have kind of credibility and actually there's lots of you know hype around us in the category, but we all know that horrible phrase, you know, liquid on lips, which every marketeer like shudders that hearing, it's so gross. But um, this idea that actually you need to get people to taste your product. So our next phase now is finding really cost-effective and innovative ways to get people tasting it because we know that the reaction is so powerful. And to do that, we built... Um, on our label, you'll see there's uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, 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 a scene, a banquet scene, and there's a massive yellow piano on it. Do you I'll have actually, a bottle? Do
0: you have a bottle? Do you have a package there in front of you?
3: I know. No, I don't. Actually. A, okay,
0: we don't, okay, we'll, we'll put we'll put an image up on we'll the We'll put website. a
3: picture up. Uh, it's basically got it's basically a, a group of characters that were very kind of yeah, and they're kind of joyful characters in a sort of banquet scene, illustrated by an artist called Rosalina Bakova. And anyway, we. We took the piano that is the main centerpiece of our label and we recreated it in real life and built a giant theatrical yellow piano, which is on wheels and opens up into a sampling bar. Um, and we basically did guerrilla marketing all over London, all over at festivals where pianists come and play amazing songs. And then while they're entertaining people, we get people to try our product. Um, and that That's way- such
0: a great idea. It was so great.
3: Well, for me, it's like, it's not just about people tasting the products, it's about them feeling the way you want them to feel when they're tasting it. Um, and trying to do that in a in sampling situation can be challenging. So we had to get creative.
0: So uh, one one last follow-up on that would be, you've decided to position it as a premium brand. W- why? Uh,
3: why? Well, because it's very expensive to make.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: but the bottom line is, it's, it, it is the only product in, in our category that we know of, which has no flavorings or preservatives. Uh, and as I mentioned, it takes a year to make. Um, I also, you know, our, our consumer is very, very specific. It's, you know, 30 to 60-year-olds, um, affluent, people who really care about the way things are made, people with discerning taste profiles, you who know, are drinking, you know, whiskey, natural wine, etc. Um, and they don't skew young.
0: We'll be right back. This series is brought to you by Tracksuit, a beautiful, affordable, and always-on brand tracking tool that helps you answer the question, is what we're doing working? A not-so-secret fact is that companies pay 100000 or more for brand tracking, which is out of the question for modern brands whose budgets are under pressure. TrackSuit has been built by marketers for marketers and makes brand tracking 10 times easier and 10 times more affordable. Their research experts do the heavy lifting by using best-in-class practices to craft the questions and get your survey live. TrackSuit surveys thousands of people each week from panels of millions around the world to give you full visibility of your brand health in 30 days with insights updated for your brand daily. Tracksuit is fast becoming the common language for marketers and agencies to measure, understand, and communicate the value of brand building. Check them out at Gotracksuit.com. That's goTracksuit.com. Now back to the show. For you, Catherine, when you think about um your brand, about Halley, and you and I had a great conversation about your what you what you kind of defined as your Halley girl. And I love your insights into this so-called generational. Um, distinctions between Gen Z and millennials. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the, that targeting and that definition of who your Hallie girl was or is becoming?
1: It's definitely come more into focus as the brand has has matured. But we did a bunch of consumer research with that 18 to 25-year-old target brand surveys and color preferences and all sorts of different things before we kind of came up with with Halley. And it was kind of everything you read about with Gen Z and you know what they prefer in the brand and they're they're bolder and brighter and you know gender fluid and and all those attributes. And that was really, you know, core to Halley when we started. And then when we went into Ulta, we had the opportunity to kind of work with the buyer to understand some of the affinity data of, you know, products that consumers that bought Halley were were also buying. And it was very interesting because the beauty credentials of the brands were much more prominent than, you know, what we had at Halley at the time. You know, we've subsequently, I would say, enhanced and and revised the brand to better reflect it. But it was funny because at one moment I was FaceTiming with Mare, who was, you know, 22 at the time. And I didn't give her a chance to to change anything, and I just said, you know i want I want you to show me all the beauty products you have in your bathroom." And they weren't anything like what she had surveyed. Like they were glossier and drunk elephant, like much more millennial. And I think it's kind of that same sentiment, you know you read in the news that like people poll differently than they vote. And it was for me like this unlock of like, huh, like they might have affinities for a lot of these attributes, but they're still shopping beauty very much in the same way that, you know, me would shop beauty. And so I think that that was a really important moment for Hallie to kind of realize that at the end of the day, this is something they're putting on your hair. And it is a girl that cares about her appearance and and is buying this as a, a beauty product. And so I think for us enhancing those you know beauty credentials on pack you know we redesigned our pack and you know a lot of our communications has helped us you know really better connect with with our Hallie gal.
0: is consumer research on an ongoing basis uh, something that you're engaging in or do you find yourself more focusing on the trade and the retailers and understanding that you're meeting needs that they're comfortable with so that they continue to stock you
1: I think that it's definitely both. So for me, like some of the retailers have been very helpful and more of like the quantitative research and understanding market size and opportunities and tangential areas for Hallie to innovate in that, you know, makes sense for the brand. But I think the psychographics for me have come very much from our consumers themselves. And, you know, I started the brand in COVID, but really in 2000 and. 23 for the first time, um, you know, we went from college to college to college and did a mobile tour with Hallie. Like we have a a vehicle, which we call the Hallie mobile. And I was able to physically do, you know, thousands of, you know, our customers hair. And I think I learned, you know, so much about it. And then just seeing their reactions and things that you know, they liked her new shades or, you know, us, you know, hearing from them and what else they, you know, found interesting or exciting has been a huge component for Hallie. You know, at, at Pepsi, they used to call, say, cans and hands, like you just got to get cans and hands and have people try it. And for me, like that sentiment, which I think is very old school, it's now come to see a lot more experiential grassroots coming back. But that was you know, been a huge unlock for us at Halley because in general, the category that we're playing in, um, you know, at-home hair color carries very little relevance to the customer that we're going after. And so I think... You know, our biggest opportunity is to to grow the category at large, to bring new people in that, you know, never once shopped at home hair color because we now create products that are formats that are easy and, you know, low, like low commitment and they wash out. And so It was very much the seeing is believing strategy and, you know, the product is so demonstrative. So having people, you know, physically try it and then, you know, get to post on social media and do the TikToks and have that amplification effect has been very, very core to our marketing strategy.
0: So, Jessica, for you, are are you... Are you finding, I'm trying to understand, like, for example, the idea of the types of research that are used to sort of track your brand and track your your product, um, uh, your product's reputation, because a case could be made that when you're starting out, and I, I know a lot of companies fall into this trap where you're so myopically focused on the product that you're not at all considering the fact of how the product is being received outside of um um outside of the retail or e-tail environment. You're you're just focused on selling it in and less on the pulling of the pulling of it through to consumer. Um in terms of monitoring it, does that make sense to you?
4: Yeah, I mean I think measuring the qualitative side of brand awareness and and happiness is has forever been challenging, right? I think it's very amorphic there aren't a lot of numbers, and right now marketing is so focused on numbers, right? I think we've gone so far one direction on the data-driven side that people are losing sight of the importance of the sentiment of your brand and how people are feeling about it, which actually like ultimately drives the data piece of it, right? So yeah, uh, I think being able to track those things, whether it's using listening tools, understanding sentiment on social, having... A PR agency or somebody who can help you understand, you know, what's your aided and unaided awareness levels, especially when you're new and competing in really big spaces with big players is important because as you're looking for additional investors, you need to be able to showcase like, hey, we are gaining market share, even though, you know, we're not going to be you know, the Revlon of the world, like we're making our own space and this is how people are responding to it. And that's really important when it comes to additional rounds of funding.
0: So how about for you, Emmy, with you guys, um, it makes so much sense that you in this first phase, phase of credibility, uh, the, as you defined it, that that's really about gatekeepers and influencers. Um, how do you keep track of that? I mean, are you are you doing studies on it? Are you do do you do something ongoing, or is is it uh, just something that you're feeling by interacting with people one on one?
3: It's kind of a combination of things. We do. Uh, my background is consumer research, so we do look at what how everyone is you know talking online. We do social listening. Um, uh, so and and you know, keep track of of all that. I spend a lot of time um, in that world. Uh, I also just think looking at like Shopify data, just think, looking at what our repeat rates are, like what our demographics are. Um, you know that 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 kind of how much they are you know, increasing the bottle, you know, the basket size, like in between purchases. Like you can start to understand you know, which demographics you're connecting with from their behaviors on Shopify, and actually you can get quite a lot. Um. From that, and then you can use that data to then we do do groups to then dive into what that data means on a personal level.
0: So, Catherine, it's um, it's interesting as Jessica just said, this idea of performance marketing versus brand marketing. Do you see a distinction between them, uh, those two types of marketing in your world today?
1: Yes, I think there's definitely a distinction. For Halley, you know, we're primarily a wholesale company, so the vast majority of our volume comes from. To Target and Walmart, so I really think of product marketing more on the shopper marketing level. So when I think about you know that person that's in a store and it, discovering Hallie Likely for the first time, a lot of the product attributes and then outlining context for her on you know why our product would make sense, I think are you know probably the best messages that we have to play with at, at that juncture but when it talk when we think about elevating the brand and just getting people aware of halley overall we you know employ much more of like a partnership strategy or pr or um, social and influencers that are much more about the brand at large and less about our you know specific products and those attributes on you know how they work on your hair
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about your marketing mix today? Tell us about the type of marketing that you can now afford to do that you couldn't previously.
1: I mean, we still don't have, you know, I'll be all watching the Super Bowl on Sunday and loving all of the spots and rooting for all of the big guys, but (laughs) we're not doing any of those. So, you know, to answer your question, when I first started Hallie and had, you know, really, really zero money. I spend five thousand dollars a month on a PR agency. And it was just something that I felt that it was like our biggest line item besides our company insurance at the time. And it was just something that we felt like was so important to get people to first learn about Halley. But our mix today, like we've always had a really strong partnership um, angle. And you know, the way I thought about it was, you know, how do we work with brands that are much bigger than Halley that we can borrow, you know, from their equity that, you know, both adds credibility of like, oh, well, like if Mattel and Barbie is working with Halley, this might be a product that makes sense for me. And then also, again, I think a lot of our strategy is just about creating relevant usage occasions for our products. And that goes into, you know, basically bringing hair color more into the like pop culture beauty world and so for us like working with Mattel and Barbie which we did last summer for the movie was incredible because Ulta put us on you know an end cap in the front of the store with nail and color cosmetics and so just being able to get out of the hair color aisle and really treat it more as like makeup for your hair and you know for us to perform with having like the same velocity and turns as, you know, much wider categories, those partnerships have been super key into our retail strategy of just getting more points of distribution and for Halley. And so that's really a big part of our strategy and one that we'll continue with, you know, this year, we have some really great partners. And I think for us, it's just a litmus test of, you know, Does it make sense? Like, what can we gain from it, from the brand? And then how do we bring it to life that we can really make make the most of it? But they've been, you know, pretty cost-effective and ROAS positive um, for us to date.
0: So what was the nature of the Hallie relationship with Mattel? I mean, how does small Hallie make that, get involved with Mattel in the Barbie movie? I mean, that just seems like an amazing win.
1: It was an amazing win. So prior to working with Mattel, I actually got, we worked with Disney, and we had an amazing partnership with Disney for their movie Turning Red, and we launched our red hair color in partnership with them.
0: How did you do that? That's amazing. stunning.
1: How did that come about? Yeah, so I, the senior partnership manager, emailed hello at HallieHair.com. And I thought it was spam. I, like, looked it up on LinkedIn. I'm like, my gosh, this is actually a Disney employee. And it turns out, you know, she had seen Hallie. I mean, she's incredible at her job, like, always looking for new brands. But she had seen Hallie on Instagram and in a press story. So, again, you know, like, these kind of intangible results of PR. And um, so we had an incredible partnership with Disney. And I think that's what kind of put us on on the map because a lot of the entertainment, you know, companies follow one another. But really, I have to give credit to Ulta for uh, Barbie. And so they knew that they were really going deep with the Barbie thematic last summer and obviously getting behind the movie in a big way. And they told Mattel, you know, we want to put hair on, on this display. And we think Hallie's the brand you should talk to. And so they connected me with the Mattel team. And Mattel had actually never worked with the hair color partner before in all their years. And it was because, you know, typical box dye is not really a fit, but we have a product that kind of streaks into your hair like mascara and washes right out. And anyone that played with Barbies, you know, at some point cut Barbie's hair or colored Barbie's hair with markers. And so we <laughs> right. had a lot of like nostalgia playing with Barbie. But that, that is, you know, how how it came to be and something, you know, super fortunate to have, you know, a buyer really be an advocate for, you know, the brands that they have in their set. But then also, you know, I think the the dividends from PR and, and social media really is how we got started with, with Disney before that.
0: So Jessica, this idea of of paid versus earned, whether that's in earned or paid media or there's earned and paid partnerships, um, it just seems that this idea of paid media is not as common as it used to be and that partnerships and credibility and integrating with other people, uh, you know, getting on board with what other brands are doing is naturally, or it feels organic. It it um it, it, may be, it goes a lot further than traditional paid media, particularly in these sort of early um, startups phases.
4: Yeah, I think it's a mix, right? Your pie should never be predominantly anything, but I think when it comes to being smaller and having smaller budgets, being able to get product in hand, experience in real time with people, Makes a bigger impact, right? If you don't have brand identity, people don't know your name, running ads on Google aren't going to, you're not going to see the impact of that, right? Because if your logo doesn't resonate, your name doesn't resonate, no one's going to feel inclined to click and learn more. So I'm always a huge proponent of experiential activation. I think it creates advocates for your brand much faster than any sort of paid advertising especially digital is going to do for you um because you need to get those people to know who you are from the get go
1: and for for us at halley now that you know our distribution has really increased and we feel that our product assortment is where we want it to be it's it's now the time that we're really starting to think about brand more seriously you know there there's still going to be a level on of- what's achievable and what we can afford. But I think that positioning, you know, Hallie overall as, you know, wearable hair color and all those kind of like more brand sentiments um, is something that we're really focused on for this year.
0: So Jessica, for you, do you think, you know, for, for many years, because I think the use of, of, um, of D2C platforms and uh, e-commerce, the whole. Com- the whole conversation around marketing tended to be going towards the data, as you said earlier, towards performance marketing. Do, do you see it sort of shifting back uh, towards a more balanced approach in the way that uh, I feel it is happening?
4: I mean, I would I would love to see it shift back a bit faster than it seems to be right
0: now. <laughs> yeah.
4: um, I mean, to me, it's all matrix, right? If you don't have one piece, your puzzle's not complete. Um And so I think while there's definitely this trend around paid and data and what's the click rate and what's the conversion rate, yes, all those things are important. But at the end of the day, if your customer can't figure out who you are versus the competitor because you haven't done anything to develop and and cement that brand message to that consumer, your retention rate is going to struggle. And that happens a lot in startups, right? The first four years... All the investors care about is acquisition. How many people have you acquired? What's your what's your CAC? How are you doing in terms of acquisition? And then around like year four or five, I see this all the time at startups. They're like, so what's your retention rate? Never have like, wait, what? Retention? We forgot about that because you were so focused on acquisition. And so the retention happens faster if you have this brand awareness and advocacy development that happens in tandem, right?
3: Yeah. And actually, I, I think increasingly investors are, are shifting that point of view as well. I think like they used to be like, what's your revenue? Like, how? what's your customer acquisition? And increasingly, the more I talk to investors, the more they're saying, actually, we're looking at how much of the basket size going up on the second 3rd purchase, how many people are coming back. And actually, your volume might be less, but Actually, it's more valuable to show that people are coming back because people don't just have like hundreds and thousands of millions of pounds to spend on marketing campaigns without showing that people are going to come back. And actually, that first acquisition is really expensive. It's the repeat rate is where you're making the money. Um, so that, that kind of role of, of sort of brand and how people feel when they're interacting with something or drinking something is a key reason why they come back.
0: It is uh, Emma Ermgassen, co-founder of Motivo Drinks in London, Catherine Winokur, founder and CEO of Halley Hair, and Jessica Klimchek. She is uh, most recently with, uh, with Entain in San Francisco. Thank you, all three of you for participating in this first, uh, uh, episode in this series. It was really great to meet you. I wish you all the best in building these brands and building brands in the future. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do it again when you guys are all killing it in stage three, four, and five. Thank you for so much. Bye.
2: Thank Thank you. you. Bye.
0: And we'll see everyone on the next episode.